Oh, that's a magpie. Oh, yeah. Okay. Pretty I guess I've always heard description of the magpies, but we don't have magpies in North America. Oh, yeah. So we have, like, oh, we've actually got their nests, maybe, in your tree. Oh, I guess, like, your birds. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry. But, yeah, so the suspicion is that if you see one alone, it's, like, one for sorrow. So you're meant to say, like, hi, Mr. Magpie, how's your wife and kids? Or, hello, this is magpie. Or, it's quite gender normative. Huh. Interesting. But yeah, that's the kind of Fascinating. Hey listeners, this is PhD Zain, and I am on strike in the UK. This episode is all about the ongoing dispute between our union and the state of higher education in the UK. I'm sure all our listeners know far too well in their own experience the problems with neoliberal higher education, the way that budgets are being slashed, the way that inequality is mere lip service, the way that um, there's fewer and fewer jobs available on the market. But what do we do about that? And again, these are complaints that are ubiquitous across the board with anything you search with the hashtag academic Twitter or PhD life or PhD chat, that we recognize structurally globally, there are issues across all fields in terms of how, uh, in terms of rights and labor. But what actual recourse do we have when we keep presenting our demands through the usual channels? In the UK, at least, we have an actual union, uh, the UCU, which stands for the University College Union. This is in contrast to, say, in America, the way that we have uh, the American Association of University Professors, or in Canada, that we have the Canadian Association of University uh, Teachers. Whereas here, we're an actual union that is able to bargain and go on strike. And so I'm recording this as we're midway through uh, our strike in 2019. And I'm really happy to have a guest uh, here today, uh, Francesca Brooks, to talk to you about this subject. Welcome, Francesca. Hi, thanks for inviting me to come speak during the strike. <laughs> so I'm a teaching fellow um, at UCL in medieval literature, and I'm currently on a temporary contract. So I'm one of the casualized staff in universities. My contract's coming up to an end in June. Mm. Um, yeah. Oh, so I'm going to miss you so much. <laughs> I know, I'm going to, yeah. I'm miss- kind of miss people as well at UCL um yeah and it's not so long ago either that I was still a PhD student and also um, a postgraduate teaching assistant or graduate teaching assistant so a member of hourly paid staff and I remember the strikes um last year as well in 2018 and so I felt quite mobilized um in this strike as someone with a bit more power now that I'm a teaching fellow um but still quite close to precarity and kind of feeling those issues mm-hmm and I feel like just the, the fact that we have this union just changes the landscape of of what we were able to do. Listeners may remember that we had an episode a couple years ago when we had an attempt to unionize as graduate students at Cornell. And there was like a, a sort of a mass movement across private universities in the U.S., some of which did succeed, but then... Their university administrations were just able to wait them out until the Trump administration then also changed the rules on them, basically. Um, but... What's great is uh, people like Fran and also uh, what they call PGTAs, which are basically graduate student teachers, can also join the very same union that the academics and other staff, uh, librarians, and um, are a part of. Um, I think that also you, you don't have to pay membership dues, right? Yeah, yeah. If you're a PhD student or a postgrad, yeah, you get free membership if you see you. And... It, I think it's just really exciting the way that there still is an, an ethos of this type of collective organizing um, in the UK in a way that I think we uh, has been sort of 
well, suppressed in in North America for various reasons, even though there is very much a um, anti-union legislation here as well. Yeah, there were some recent attempts to kind of su- suppress our ability to take this action as well. So the introduction by the government of this 50% threshold that meant that unions needed to get over uh, 50% turnout or over on a vote in order to take strike action. Um, but luckily, well, some some universities failed. They they missed out by about 10 or 20 votes, but actually they're going to be reballoted on Wednesday. So hopefully they'll be joining us on the strike as it continues maybe across the year. Because mm-hmm. I'd heard that even one of the universities very close to us, Birkbeck, like, missed out by like less than a dozen votes or something mm-hmm. absurd like that. Um, but how about let's go to a little bit of the background of this uh, struggle, because I think what's really notable is the fact that um, UCU is actually following um, a different strike that's going on. Do you want to talk about that? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, this is also um, the IWGB strike um, at UCL. So that's the Independent Workers' Union of Great Britain. And this is, um, I think it's been happening in different forms across universities, um, in universities across the UK. But at UCL in particular, um, it's been a very live struggle because our catering, security, porters and cleaning staff are currently outsourced with companies like Sodexo, rather than being insourced that means that um then they're not they're not paid by the university and they don't have the same terms of employment as university staff have um so they have less sick pay less holiday pay um and things like that mm-hmm. um although i guess what what one should point out is like this particular struggle has been by institution whereas the ucu strike right now um encompasses i think 60 universities do you want to talk a little bit about the scope of of the strike So members in 57 institutions across the UK voted to take strike action and action short of a strike about pay and working conditions. Um, And in 46 46 institutions, they voted to take strike action and action short of a strike about USS. So there are two separate um, disputes. Here, I think probably is an important thing to point out. When we use the word term casualization in the UK, that's what we call adjunctification in the US or Canada. Different, different word, same logic of like the cutting of benefits, the, the loss of jobs towards more and more precarious positions, this sort of generational undermining of, of continuity and the flourishing of the field, uh, contributing to existing inequality. Uh, but let's shift back to the specifics of the UK context. Uh, Frank, can you tell us a little bit about the specifics of the strike? Who is on strike and what are our demands? Okay, yeah, so members of the of the UCU are on strike, and this includes not just um, teaching fellows, lecturers, so academic staff, but also administrative staff as well. And we voted on two issues. So the first one was about pensions, um, and that was our pensions being cut in, in real terms, and that was an issue that we also went on strike for in 2018, so it's kind of continuing the momentum from that. And then the second issue, which really for me feels like the most important one, and actually felt like one of the reasons why we were on strike in 2018 as well, um, is the four fights dispute, which is about pay, equality, workload, and casualization. So that's about the stagnation of our of our pay and our wages. It's also about inequality um, of of pay and wages for mostly for women and also BA, BAME staff, which is the UK term for people of color. 
and um, and then also about increasing workload so that the stats suggest that most um, most academics and staff in universities now work two days a week of unpaid labor I think is there of figure and then casualization which is this wider issue that links to the IWGB so the workers strike as well people on um, hourly paid contracts or short-term contracts with no no long-term security in their jobs um, and often being paid quite minimal wages and I think what's exciting is of what you alluded to that this strike has these two demands um, and that the previous strike that our listeners may be aware of, there is only the demand for pensions, even though all these much larger structural issues were also the reason why uh, so many people came out in support of it. Of course, like something with pensions seems most immediately pressing to the people who are the most senior in the academic hierarchy that have the most security, <laughs> the most most money, basically. And yet all these uh, people far more junior, far more precarious, teaching fellows, graduate students, um, other people, types of contingent labor, came out and supported them because they saw it as part of this lar- these larger structural issues. And yet that was implied, but not actually part of the official demands. And so what's great is that we actually had the vote on that and we're able to, to strike on that basis as well. That being said, I thought it was rather striking that there's a, there's a difference in the number of institutions that managed to vote for the the pensions demand mm-hmm. versus the one for the question of pay, racial and gender inequality, workload and casualization. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, yeah. So there was a slightly lower turnout for the second demand for pay, equality, workload and casualization. So even though people returned their ballot for the pension one, slightly less people in most institutions return their ballot on the second one, um, which which definitely was a little bit disappointing to see that clearly some people are motivated by the pensions issue, but don't want to discuss that kind of um, larger structural issue, actually, that I think the second demand speaks to. Which is also weird because we, I'm pretty sure we got both ballots at once, so it's not like yeah. one of them got lost or like, what the, yeah, one of them no, was sent out successfully. Like, it was literally in the same envelope, so you could just do both at once. Yeah, very easy to send them back at the same time. Since... Again, we've alluded to the fact that there was a strike a couple of years ago that was about pensions. Why are we here again? What happened in the interim? Yeah, so the most important thing is that um, there was an attempt to change the way the pension scheme worked, move away from a defined contribution. And this meant that on average, USS members would lose around £240,000 in their retirement. Mm. Um, so quite a substantial loss. Um, and yes, the JEP, the Joint Expert Panel, who reviewed this, decided that this was kind of false, but um, employers and USS have kind of refused to accept that wisdom. And mm-hmm. so we're still trying to make the changes that would um, mean that these losses happened. And so my understanding, so because I came after this dispute, is also that the existing union leadership did an inadequate job of negotiating even though we had um, the strike had ended, and, and nonetheless, they did not take advantage of that victory to actually push for substantive change. Um, and so I know that there's a lot of frustration. Mm-hmm. And what sort of had surprised me coming in is that I got, was so excited, like, wow, well, I'm actually part of a union. And then also hearing that a lot of people in the union are actually not really into unions, <laughs> uh, which is really confusing to me. Um, and my understanding that the previous union leadership were like professional organizers, which oddly meant they had less stake in the game. Yeah, so it was interesting. Um, the The last strike was a, a kind of it was cumulative. So it was um, for I think fourteen days in total. Got uh, every week 
we added more days to how many days we were on strike for. And there was an incredible sense of energy on the picket line and we were all having these discussions about the neoliberal university and marketization and how angry we were about casualization. And we felt like we had this kind of movement that was really powerful. And then Sally Hunt, who was the union leader at the time, um, and her team, they kind of accepted a deal that to us felt like giving in. Mm. Um, and like it, it kind of, like they hadn't really fully understood or grasped they underestimated the the power of the movement that we felt we'd kind of built up around these issues by getting lots of people involved who maybe had never been union members before and didn't feel very much like union people mm-hmm. um so yeah she's been replaced by joe grady who's um actually Two votes, yeah replaced. yeah a vote so yeah yeah the, the, the popular was... sentiment was that we need a new leadership <laughs> yeah and she was voted um joe grady was voted uh as union leader and she's um, a former academic herself actually I think she specialized in trade union law so Mm. she both has an experience of what it's like to be a lecturer under these increasing demands um, but also knows union law very well so there's a kind of a feeling that she's in the fight for the long haul and that she's kind of willing to um, mobilize us a bit more yeah and, th- and I think that's incredibly exciting that hopefully this time, if the stri- you know, if knock on wood, the strike will be successful. And this time we're under leadership that really does believe in and wants to push for the type of substantive change that is called for in this instance. Yeah. Yeah. These kinds of structural changes we've been talking about that the smaller things are symptomatic of. So here's the big question. So I knew all that going in. And it's something I voted for, but my <laughs> understanding of what the strike actually meant or consisted of was very hazy. Like I really had like the image in my, head, in my head that, you know, I heard my colleagues talking about standing outside, holding, holding things, <laughs> passing out flyers, not doing things. But what that actually meant in real terms, and I remember I was sending like um, messages to a friend of mine who's American, who's also in the same, same position as me of, wow, this is the first time I'm part of a union. This is something we vote for. But oh my God, we have no idea what this is. And so I have um, been sending so many messages to my various British friends asking like, can I do this? Can I do this? Things like that. Uh, on the most basic level of things like, I was like, can I, can I go into my office to water my plants? The answer is no. I'm, I think my plants are all going to be dead, sadly. Which makes me... This is very sad. It is. And also, it was such a struggle to keep them alive. But they're being sacrificed for the cause. A casualty of the strike. Yeah. So so what does the strike actually look like? So the strike means withdrawing all of your labour. So everything that you get paid to do by the university, you withdraw that labour. And also, it means that the whole university campus becomes surrounded by a picket line, uh, whether that's kind of a real physical picket line, as in there's a large group of people standing there with leaflets and flyers and posters, or just a kind of um, a, a sort of an understanding of a, of a line that exists that you should not cross. So we also can't go into university buildings. That's a part of it. And the hope is actually that we kind of empty out the university as much as possible and sort of leave management there um, in empty buildings mm-hmm. with uh, students who have also hopefully come out in support of us and left the buildings. Mm-hmm. And so part of what the picket is trying to do is both to draw awareness of it, but also to persuade students to go elsewhere. Yeah. In solidarity. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we, we try and we try and talk to students about why we're on strike. So it's the kind of the visible place where we get to communicate um, what this is all about and why we're why we're angry, why we're upset and also why this is their struggle as well, because 
part of it is a frustration at the huge fees that they're paying and the ways in which they've been transformed into consumers um, rather than kind of this being a sort of intellectual community or environment as well. Um, yeah, and hopefully we turn them away. This works very rarely when we have a lot of STEM and engineering students whose lecturers aren't on strike um, and therefore they kind of, they feel like, you know, they'll, they'll be missing out if they don't come in um, or people who have labs and live animals and things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not it's... just plants, but... I know. Like, yeah. yeah. It's okay if my plants die, but when the mice die, that's... Yeah. <laughs> that is such a big issue. And I think it's just so unfortunate because... Um, as Liz and I talk a a lot about like the labor issues I think are particularly keenly felt in STEM because of the lab environment and the way it operates Mm -hmm. as its own miniature workplace and yet at the same time by the very nature of the work they do if they do sort of like in vivo stuff with animals and stuff like stuff like that they have an like an ethical obligation Mm -hmm. to them as well and so they're sort of they're just in such a bind even though yeah they're very much aware um, of these labor issues yeah, I think that's a very real conflict. I was kind of talking about that with someone about how if I'm withdrawing my labour, in some sense I've made the decision for my students. I've kind of told them why I'm on strike mm-hmm. and this is why they they don't have to come in. But if your lecturers and, and other staff are not striking and it, the choice is then in the students' hands about whether they cross that picket line or not I can see how it becomes a slightly more complicated yeah issue and the mice can't choose yeah exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah like I'm and the other question I had was also like what does it mean on the digital front like can you respond to emails and the answer is no and so like I put on a special an away message that the union suggested a lot of other people have and one way people have been suggesting doing digital solidarity for those who you who are not in strike even those you're not in the UK is like not tweeting about work doing or tweeting about anything that was supporting your employer yeah yeah so i think this is another interesting way because maybe the the temptation is to kind of go on strike and go away and do other work that actually Mm. sometimes the kind of the the busyness and the chaos of the the teaching term might get in the way of but it's important to think about the ways the many ways in which you perform labor for your employers so yeah, the kind of even the public face talking about your research on Twitter um, does somewhat to kind of promote them as a research institution. And I know that there's some grey areas because for the last strike, uh, a number of British academics cancelled going to conferences, for instance, especially internationally, that is. But um, others did it because they saw that their labor was not for their employer. It was like it was about for, for them. Um, there's a lot of grey areas there. Things like I cancelled talks that I was supposed to be giving in these couple of weeks, which are which I was very excited excited to present on, but nonetheless, like it's, it was important to to not not get those get get those like great moments, CV moments, or or what mm-hmm. have you, because we're sort of thinking about the sort of the wider cause here. Also, so as I learned what the strike consists of, I thought does this mean we have to stand from for eight hours outside? Thankfully, no. <laughs> Um, the way it's been working for us is that you picketing runs from eight to twelve or twelve thirty. Yeah, um, and and people don't have to stay for the whole thing. In fact, unfortunately, if I sound congested right now, it's because when I tried to do my like a, a fuller shift, so I got there at nine and I still stayed there until past noon. Uh, I got sick, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, this so, is yeah. I, I mean, last time we were on strike as well, it actually snowed. So we were often on the picket lines in the snow. So at least, I think it is due to get quite cold on Monday, but 
um, yeah, just standing still, even if it's still 10 degrees, you can get very cold after a while. This was mortifying to me. I have to just <laughs> express this. Like, I am Canadian. This is England. The, the winter is like nothing compared to what I'm used to in Toronto. And so I was arrogant. I did not think I had to dress as warmly. Also, the thing is, like, I haven't brought my really heavy-duty winter things with me because I left them in Canada because also the having to bring them back with me every single year and the amount of space they take up just not seem feasible. Um, and I thought I was dressed warmly enough. And yet I had not calculated with the fact that even in Toronto, one does not stand still for three hours in the cold. And so I hadn't factored that in at all. Yeah, thermal layers are the way to go. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, it's like afterwards I got a cup of hot chocolate and I hadn't realized how cold I was until after a couple of minutes of holding it. Then I felt tingling in my hands because I had just gotten that numb. Uh, but yeah. yeah, we had a, a teach out on the Tuesday and, and I was trying to write something on a piece of paper and it had like rained in my face during the teach out and I'd got really cold and I realized that my fingers weren't really working anymore. So I was like struggling to write on this piece of paper. Yeah, the cold. <laughs> but what's nice is the sense of camaraderie. Like, I feel like I've already gotten to know my, my colleagues a bit better, my students. Um, oh, actually, that's one thing that we should emphasize about, about students. That students are, um, on the whole, in support of the strike. That the official student union across the UK is in support of their academic union. Yeah, and this is one of the things that actually has been um, kind of filling me with a lot of joy and, and solace, actually. Because sometimes being on the picket for me is a bit um, bittersweet. A lot of people have been asking me how long I'm staying for and I have to kind of tell them my contract's ending. But um, the kind of the happy moments for me are when our students come along to the picket to express their support and to also talk to us and ask us questions. Um, and one of my students came by yesterday to see the teach out. She was going to cover it for one of the student journals. But she also talked about how there was a general feeling from students in the English department that we as staff had communicated with them really well um, and they didn't feel angry actually they felt quite well supported oh, and like they really understood what was going on so that was like really a really great thing to hear oh, th no that's really yeah. good and I think like we all made that sort of effort because definitely I had a message that I sent out to all my two T's to my seminar groups like both like apologizing and explaining why trying to give resources to explain what was going on uh, trying to give a breakdown of what the strike would look like and I, there was also I think I, I heard a really well attended meeting where staff were available to answer all student questions about what the dynamics of that would look like and it's been yeah it's been so heartening like our students like have been showing up bringing like mince pies yeah. uh, people, students have been showing up with banners and music and loudspeakers it's been it's been wonderful in that regard, like just seeing that this this consciousness going across so many different uh, different people differently situated within the university and yet understanding like how the structural issues affect all of us. Yeah, yes, yeah, so I think some of them are writing um, a blog as well, a kind of interview blog about why they support the strike. And uh, on Monday, I teach out that Zion is also going to be speaking out on revolutionary text as kind of a co-collaboration with the undergraduates. So there are four undergraduates who'll be speaking, as well as um, Zion and one of the lecturers at UCL and a PhD student. Um, so that's kind of everyone coming together. Yeah, and so that's so, so, so exciting, right? Like this sort of lateral, horizontal space where all of us are going to get a chance to like teach and learn from each other. It's very egalitarian. Yeah. That um, I think at one of our other teach outs, someone, someone was talking, I think Matt Beaumont in our department was talking about the way that, that 
during the strike, we can see the what the university could look like in terms of being a more egalitarian space. Um, and I think like that, that in particular is very exciting. Uh, perhaps we should talk a little bit about the teach us in general, that even though teaching within the university has ceased, nonetheless, um, I think every department are, is trying to organize their own teach outs to tell their students about the strike, but also perhaps to give them uh, perspectives on the way that the discipline speaks to the issues that are going on then and also having more opportunity for people to make space in creative ways. Like we had uh, one of our teach outs involved people bringing poetry to read, staff, students, everyone alike, which I thought was a really, lo really lovely idea. Yeah, yeah, that was that was really great. Um, and we also had there's a, there's an official kind of poetry on the picket line group who came and contributed as well. Um, but yeah, we got kind of people within the department who write their own poetry to to come and read a part, a bit of that and to speak to the issues um, of strike of strike action and kind of revolution as well. Um, and and yeah, people brought their own their own poems poems of other of other people to read as well. Um, so this is the heartening side of it, besides getting way, way too cold. If you're listening, don't forget to put on your hat and gloves and your scarf. I was so stupid. Sorry. This is just <laughs> like I had was walking vigorously to get there. So I was also really overheated. So I took off my hat and scarf as well. So foolish. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. You need to, to use that extra heat. I know. I, okay. I need to stop self-flagellating. Well, we're talking a lot about the positive side, but I have to say that it is very emotionally hard. Um, also, especially if you're not extroverted, because you're also trying to engage all the people that want to push past you and ignore you. Like you're trying to hand out the flyers. And my colleagues are much better at this than I. Like I hate talking to strangers. So at most I like, hand, I hand people stuff and I say, thank you. But, <laughs> but the way that people are able to just be like, please, uh, please don't cross the picket line. Do you want to know why we're here? And things like that. And I just, I don't have that in me. I think like even my experience just like trying to do sales and retail was absolutely agonizing. And so I think that's also a way that I found it incredibly draining. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like maybe in some ways that's, that I felt like the picket is still a kind of space of teaching. And I felt myself performing in the same way I sometimes perform as a teacher. So I have been doing a bit of kind of leaping towards people oh, with my flyer saying, could we persuade you not to cross the picket line? Or do you know why run strike, support striking staff? Um, but you do have a lot of uh, quite awkward or disheartening huh. conversations with students. Um, and yeah, that there's, it's slightly rare that you get to make your full pitch on, yeah. on why you're striking. But it's, it's good when, when you do and you get to have a kind of a longer conversation um, with a student. Yeah, I guess maybe if I thought about it in the pedagogical sense, that could help. Because it's just so agonizing. It's like cold calling in person. Mm. Talking to strangers is terrible. Maybe in the best of times. And especially when they want to ignore you or are hostile. Ugh. We had a moment the other day which I felt like was also the perfect illustration of university marketization as well. Uh -huh. So there was somebody who quite aggressively rejected our attempts to talk with her and kind of um, held her hand out and pushed us away a bit. But then kind of stayed very close to the picket line and started photographing blank walls around the campus. And it turns out that actually she was from um, a, like a group of people who were surveying the campus to find space for pop-up businesses that they could put on campus at UCL. Huh. What? And just, yeah, uh. someone crossing the picket so that they can find ways to make money out of university space <laughs> felt like, yeah, this just... is why we're here, actually, to kind of try and uh. protest this kind of move. God, yeah, that that sort of sums it up, doesn't mm. it? 
One thing I wanted to say about students as well, actually, is that in some ways they're our weapon. They're our like most powerful tool for trying to communicate our demands to UCL management or to university management um, and to convince them to listen to us um, is, is by stopping teaching them and kind of making them angry as well. So I think a lot of us do feel very conflicted about that, that we know that our action is kind of hurting students immediately. So it is good when we can talk to students and um, kind of make it feel like we're in this fight together, that it's we're not just trying to mm-hmm. unnecessarily punish them, that there's a productive reason why we're withdrawing that particular bit yeah. of labour. And we've talked a little bit by, obviously the stakes in the, in the sciences are different, but I think something also to underline about why people may feel obligated to cross the picket line has to do with visa status. Mm-hmm. That in the UK, for stu- if you're on a student visa, you're supposed to check in every couple of weeks or you'll lose your visa status. And so the repercussions are very real. And it's also absurd that under this current government, we're asked to surveil our students to this degree, the way that we're supposed to take attendance. And this gets, um, and they, we have to report on them. And the thing is, like, I don't think, and I think one university even lost its status um, because because it, it wasn't doing it consistently or something like that. Really? And, yeah. Or like that's the threat of it. Also like the threat that uh, I was I was reading that at least the legisl- uh, the what the government says is like if a student is not reported on and surveilled correctly, I think they could find them uh, find the department or university twenty thousand pounds per person, which yeah, is it's, terrifying. Yeah, it is crazy. The, the yeah, yeah the way another... that we're asked, we're conscripted mm. to be part of the state, this increasingly xenophobic anti-immigration state, is is disgusting. Um, yeah, which which also I think speaks to the ways in which international students are absolutely used by universities to kind of bolster their their money and their profits. So the, the kind of extortionate rates of uh, international student yes. fees, but also the ways in which um, university accommodation is often sold to international students who um, they may be considered to be richer or who they can kind of pull the wool over their eyes a little bit because they uh-huh. might not know what London rents should be or what rents in a particular city should be. So they charge them huge rates as well. So I think that they're often the kinds of they're consumerized maybe sometimes kind of uh, more extremely than other than other students uh-huh. um, by the university structure and yeah and I think that uh, like it's harder for international students I think to be politicized because they they lack the type of context also generally it's like they're not um, well integrated into the rest of campus communities and like mental health um, issues tend to be much higher because like there's not enough work adequate work done in terms of supporting them from the type of shock of being dislocated from mm. cultural context and as well as loved ones um, and so in many ways they're they're being exploited and are particularly vulnerable but at the same time the way that they're used as as pawns in this regard um, is also dr- sort of drives a wedge in many ways into some into addressing the structural issues that we're talking about. Uh, but sort of to, to flip to the other side, so we're talking why students might cross the picket line. Why might other staff cross the picket line? Why might some people choose not to strike? Well, so there, there are also um, lots of precarious members of staff. So I think that's one thing that I think particularly for PGTAs and PhD students, um, losing that so we, we we lose pay when we go on strike we lose a day a day's pay for every day we go on strike and there is a strike fund via our union where we can claim some of that money back but it's not 
it's often not all about pay. So there is a kind of financial risk. Um, and yeah, I guess there's also kind of other risks in that about feeling that you're, if your position is precarious within the university and if lots of people in your department aren't striking, for example, you might feel especially vulnerable in taking that action. Mm-hmm. And also, even though there is no legislation in place, I can imagine that many staff here on visas themselves feel vulnerable the way that students do. After the last strike, the union did make sure that there was language that said that there could not be um, punishments or or the things that wouldn't factor towards uh, your ability to apply basically for permanent status in the UK if you go on strike. But nonetheless, we of course have no idea how to hold people to that. And the, the fact is that increasing numbers of academics who have um, secure jobs or the equivalent of tenure track jobs are being turned away, even if they're at Oxford, even if they have Ivy League degrees. Not that it should be a meritocracy, but just to sort of illustrate that even the ones that are considered the quote unquote good immigrants like these PhD academics at prestigious institutions are having their visas denied as well. And so it seems like they're just uh, the home office is just finding more and more specious reasons to mm-hmm. reject people and making the place more hostile. And indeed, this is the word that the government actually officially used a hostile environment mm-hmm. for immigrants, even though they ostensibly want to position themselves still as a global player in the world in terms of economy, but also in terms of the knowledge economy, in terms of trying to attract top researchers. And yet they're not doing any of the work to actually make it hospitable for these people, including me. Yeah. God, I'm really hoping yeah. in the future, in the next couple of years, I'm, I'm not going to have to see my name on the list, but I know it's entirely possible. Yeah, I think this is one of the things that even if you've kind of had a reassurance from the union, we don't currently have a government or a home secretary who we particularly trust not to kind of, <laughs> yeah, not to sort of dis- distort things um, or yeah, continue to behave in this uh, the, um, hostile this hostile way as well. So yeah, I think that is. A, that is a much bigger fear actually even than than losing money that kind of sense of um instability not just in your workplace but in your kind of your home and where you're living and yeah and if anything it's sort of a, a bind of course because like take doing some sort of collective action is the very thing that would change these conditions but it's the very thing that would also make them even more precarious and vulnerable but we're talking a lot about the people who are not striking or may cross picket lines for a reason because of vulnerability. But then we also have the flip side, those who do not care. Yes, and those who would maybe make arguments that academia is not about the money, that's not what the vocation is about, or, um, yeah, who I, th- I think often use this kind of sense of obligation to the students as a shield for for maybe other reasons why they... don't feel motivated to go on strike or don't want to do that basically people are rich yeah yeah i think or or rich and don't care in the same way because yeah yeah comfortable people who are not worried about the issues of pay equality workload and casualization and i think what's particular to just sort of situate in the uk context it's just been so striking to me that the way that uk academia is set up to me, exacerbates even more class inequality. Like it's always, it's the case everywhere, but in particular, the fact that it's not the norm to have funded PhDs, like there is funding that people can apply for, but nonetheless, like that immediately sort of, it becomes incredibly uh, limiting. Um, and I feel like maybe more UK academics are 
are wealthy than ones I've met in the U.S. and Canada. Although there's obviously it always is ends up privileging people who are middle class or, or or richer. Yeah, and so I think that's also sort of a stark reminder of of the issues that run throughout the the rest of UK higher education. Yeah, yeah. I think if you're a PhD student or an early career researcher. Um, most people will probably be preparing themselves for a very precarious number of years if they even get a permanent academic job ever. And there are many people that have been on temporary teaching fellow uh, contracts or equivalents for like six, nine years or more. Yeah. Uh, and that's if you're not getting paid for your summers, if you don't know if you will have a job in in January or in September, that's really hard to do if you can't fall back maybe on uh, family money or yes. parents or things in those in those contexts. Um, so it's just, it's not a viable thing to do for, for many people and yeah. It's almost like a, a condition of having a sexual academic career is part of like having financial stamina to make it through each wave of this ex- uh, of the job market every year of the increasingly miserable <laughs> and also psychological stamina as well. Um, uh, one thing I uh, I wanted to also uh, mention because I thought an excellent tweet about this I I think from Emmy Julu uh, the way that the picket line is heartening as all the photos are it also illustrates how terrible um, racial diversity for lack of a better term is in the UK yeah. just seeing that there's there's very few staff of color and it just like it highlights that so much and then I think there's also perhaps a larger conversation to have about race and class in the UK and the way that like uh, they're pitted against each other as opposed to the fact that they're not mutually exclusive because obviously there's two very implicated issues um, but that's probably like a little bit too complex to to get into right now. So I just read this great article this morning on Medium by someone called Lee Jones called The Seven Deadly Sins of Marketization in Higher Education and he writes that gendered and raced pay inequalities are at the very least functional for reducing staff costs so he's talking about market he's tying this to the issue of marketization certainly the imperative to drive down pay does not create an amenable environment for leveling up and then says at, at his university the gender pay gap is 13 13.9% while BAME colleagues are paid 21.9% less than Ugh. white personnel the gap between BAME women and white men is 31% and he says this is pretty typical of UK HE higher education as a whole. Ouch. Yeah. To so yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty damning. And I think, yeah, those photographs on the picket line illustrate well that it's, I, yeah, it seems to me that it's such a big issue and much bigger than it seems to be in North America that we just don't have um, staff of colour in or very many staff of colour in higher education institutions. Yeah, and it's something that I've been harping on ever since I've come here, but it's 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 just interesting because like in Canada and the US, like there there are these these issues, but then I had no idea that was actually comparatively better to here, which mm. was quite a shock. And indeed when I bring this up with friends who are still located in those spaces, they are also sort of shocked. And some of them even have said like, oh somehow I thought that the UK would be better than the US. Um and it's like nope, 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 nope. Uh I also wanted to to highlight um, one reason why I brought Fran to the podcast to talk about this is because she's been doing so much amazing work in terms of organizing the teach outs, um, the teach out schedule, and that 
the group who is doing that work um, are the more precarious people associated with their department who are in the union, the teaching fellows, the PGTAs. Mm-hmm. Do you want to speak a little bit to that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it has been uh, a group of about four or five of us, and yet yeah, no permanent staff have been involved mm-hmm. in organising it, although we do have some permanent staff who have kind of volunteered to speak at various events. Um, but yeah, it seems like the energy kind of came from below a bit to, yes. to organise the teach-outs, definitely. Um, and I think, yeah, p- partly that's because I think when the last time I was on strike, I was at a different institution where there was a lot of energy and uh, organisations. I felt like I was inspired and learned quite a lot by things that happened there, which wasn't actually just from um, precarious staff. There were kind of permanent members of staff doing it. Um, yeah, but it has it has felt like it's it's taken it's taken a lot of of labor yeah um but it has been very rewarding as well um and valuable and, and maybe well i hope that it has spoken yeah. to these kinds of we've able we've been able to tie it to issues of um equality and casualization as well yeah thank you so much for that and i wanted to just also convey that i recognize that labor because thank it you. is a lot and it's so important and yet like many other things it will not be uh, will not be financially remunerated at all in terms of it, but but yeah. nonetheless, my thanks is like the very least that I could. Thank you. Offer. Yeah, and thanks also for coming and taking part mm. in yeah that teach out that's gonna come. That's a kind of co collaboration with the undergraduates mm-hmm. as well. I also did another teach out that was organized by the union. Actually, that Fran was able to come to the other day. I was invited by Sandy, who is the BME student officer, so the student officer representing students of color generally, to talk about our institution's history of eugenics. And it was great because then we were able to have a much larger conversation about the sort of systems of knowledge that uh, contribute to the type of inequality that we see in the university and indeed constitute the university itself. And if we're talking about pushing the institution for change, what sort of other legacies are going on that, that are actually bound up with the specific issues of labor that we're dealing with right now. So what is next? Good question. (laughs) What is labor short of a strike? So we've mentioned that we're- Oh yeah, action. So action short of a strike is what comes next. Um, And this means that we only work, we're only meant to work to contract. So our contracts um, usually say, not all universities set an, an, an hourly time per week but they would our contracts say 36.5 hours per week is how much we should work so the idea is that during ASOS actions short of a strike we only work those 36.5 hours a week and then we stop and we don't um, work for rescheduled classes that were cancelled during the strike or take on extra work from colleagues who are on leave or sick things like that um, and the interesting thing about this and the thing that that shocked my students the most and seemed actually like quite a powerful argument for getting them on side was that many universities, including our university, have threatened, although we're not sure if they can actually do this, to take away 100% of our pay if we only work to our contracted hours. What? Yeah, this is a threat that was we received in an email and many other universities have done it too. So, so if we actually just do our jobs as defined, yeah. we won't get paid. Yes, this is what many universities are saying. <laughs> That's yeah. very telling, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. About well, what's actually expected that goes beyond the contract. Yeah, and this is exactly, speaks to that issue of workload, that universities know that they have increased our workloads and that they're expecting us to do things that we cannot do in the hours we're contracted for. And that proves that um, and shows that actually the university would collapse if, 
lots of people weren't just quietly accepting oh, this culture of overwork that I think is kind of um, so ingrained in, in academic life. Mm-hmm. Um, f- yeah, from PhD, maybe even from our undergraduates up, it's just kind of that we keep working until we've done the job. And this, yeah, I guess this idea as well that it's a vocation, it's something we love. So um, we, we live and breathe it and uh, we just keep working without kind of questioning it. Uh-huh. So uh, just to sort of sketch this out for our listeners. So we've, we are officially on full strike from I think the 25th until December 4th. And then afterwards, we'll see if we have to shift to action short of a strike. And then I suppose if that doesn't go well, we'll be thinking about whatever strike might have to happen at the beginning of the new year, which will be incredibly disruptive. God. And hopefully, but hopefully negotiations will happen on these issues. Yeah, so there has already been a little bit of movement, I think. I'm not going to know what this acronym stands for, but the people... So the second dispute that's about pay equality, workload and casualisation, um, UCEA are the people we have to negotiate negotiate with that with for that. And they have, for the first time ever, said that they might be in charge of pay issues and therefore they might be able to come to the table to discuss that. Mm. So apparently previously they've kind of denied that they have any control over pay issues. Um, so there may finally be some... If, if not for pay, then what else? Sorry, yeah. that's ridiculous. <laughs> so there may finally be some um, discussions with them. And the other thing is that people are going to be reballoted. So the universities that did not... Um, make the threshold for the first ballot reballoted on December 4th and I think that means that this current strike this kind of movement only builds in power um, and hopefully the sense of the threat of of how the strike action might escalate will encourage university managers um, to come and listen to the demands. Uh-huh. And really, again, this is for, I think that the Guardian phrases really well. This is like a battle for the soul of the university. Mm-hmm. This is for the, what we believe in, in terms of thinking about of education and knowledge in a way that's, that's non-hierarchical as possible. That might, that might be impossible, but nonetheless to have a sort of push for a more egalitarian ethos, a more liberatory p- possibility towards creating a better society. And that is part of the desire of it. And I would hope that university managers even if they're currently operating around these logics about thinking about about the university as a business and thinking about profit but i'm surely i'd hope that enough of them came into that work because they believed in the idea of the university as illusory as that fantasy may be but that that was what brought them there and that can help remind them that's not just the the pragmatic costs that are that are being paid because of the strike it's not just like the bottom line but perhaps being reminded of the ideals of why be in the space um and, and we're trying to make that appeal to the those ideals like that can be a motivating factor yeah yeah that that was beautifully said i think yeah th- those are the kinds of conversations that we have on the picket line about what we want the university to be um and we did that kind of at the end of our first teach out we got people to write on pieces of paper what they wanted the university to be and one of the responses was just or in big letters (laughs) which I really liked just a kind of sense of yeah a kind of a feeling of wonder of energy of intellectual excitement rather than a feeling of well let me calculate how much this seminar is costing me of my hugely extortionate Mm. fees and what will the debt be that I have to continue to pay back throughout my life and yeah. The other one also really like was Radical Love. Radical that Love was also is great, nice. yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much again, Fran, for 
coming today so I could interview about this. Um, thanks so much for our listeners. Hope, I hope that especially if you're not in the UK, you managed to learn something about the struggle. If you're interested in supporting us, please put, post on social media about this issue. Use the hashtag UCU Strikes Back. There also is the, the Fighting Fund. <laughs> yeah, so the Fighting Fund, I think you can find it through the UCU website and um, you can donate to this. And this is so staff that have lost pay and usually it will be the most kind of vulnerable, precarious people that will um, apply for the Strike Fund can claim some of that money that they've lost back. So um, it, it helps them to keep going out onto the picket line. So um, if you're able to support us in any of those ways, it's very much appreciated. And thanks so much for listening and take care of yourselves. Thank you.